Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today we're going to be telling you part three of the H.H. Holmes story. Abby, what are you drinking today? I am drinking an iced vanilla latte from Bada Bean. 10 out of 10. Recommend, as always, if you live in the Columbus area, check it out. Fantastic. And I am drinking a hot black coffee that I made here at home. Pour yourselves a strong cup or not a strong cup, a hot cup cold cup, whatever you want to drink, pour it up and let's get going. We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. Alrighty, welcome back everyone. Thank you for following us along on this journey as we talk about who is commonly known as H.H. Holmes and also referred to as one of America's, well, maybe even the world's first like documented serial killer. I'm sure there was some more before that and that's a loose kind of description, I think. But anyway, we are digging back in. We're going to wrap it up this episode, talk a little bit about the capture of H.H. Holmes, his trial, his confession, and maybe just discuss a little bit of our thoughts on the case. And where we left off, Holmes had just murdered Benjamin Peitzel, who was his accomplice. They had this whole fake death money life insurance scam cooked up and Holmes actually turned on Benjamin and actually killed him and then ran off with three of his kids to use them in his ploy to take more money from people essentially while Benjamin's wife Carrie and her oldest and youngest were back home trying to figure out if Benjamin was alive where her kids were and trying to figure out what Holmes was doing now when we left off Holmes was traveling around with the three kids uh, evading arrest he had his insurance payout but what he didn't do was follow up on a deal he had made with his previous cellmate Marion Hedgepath who had in exchange for $500 had given the name of a crooked lawyer to Holmes to make bank on that insurance payout and Holmes was supposed to be sending $500 to Marion Hedgepath. Now Hedgepath was still in prison but he read a newspaper and saw that the murder was carried out and he was like hey I never got any money and he was pissed and he's like well screw this i am going to blow the whistle on the whole operation so he notifies the warden and actually contacts the insurance company somehow and tells them about this whole plan that was cooked up and understandably the detectives start getting involved in this and they actually enlist this detective group called the pinkertons um, they had been noted for catching criminals and something I thought was really interesting that I saw, they were actually the group who kind of started mugshots as a way of keeping track of criminals. So that was very interesting. So they get involved in this investigation and they are just known for doing good work. And luckily they are able to do this and they end up tracking down Holmes. 
and they do arrest him in Boston on November 17th, 1894. He is brought back to that same prison he was in earlier called the Moyamensing Prison. No idea if I said that right, but you guys get what I mean. Anyway, they charge him with conspiracy to cheat and defraud the Fidelity Mutual Life Insurance Company, which is the insurance company that they took that claim from Benjamin out of. And essentially, it comes out that it was Benjamin Peitzel that was the person who was, well, dead at this point that was ruled accidental, but they're trying to prove that it was Holmes. And Holmes is like, no, 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 he, he did kill himself. And then they're like, well, we've heard from Carrie as well. And we're kind of wondering where the other three kids are that you took. And Holmes just is nonstop giving all these different stories. Something that's going to come up a little bit throughout this is how much of a narcissist he is. He wants to be talking. He wants to be spinning whatever he can. And so these people keep coming back to him and talking to him like, where are the kids? And he just keeps throwing out all these different stories because he's getting attention. Detectives at this point are like, you know what? Like, we don't have a good feeling about this. We think he might have actually killed them. And so they decide to enlist Detective Frank Geyer and he starts to track down all of Holmes's past movements and tries to figure out if he can locate the children, hopefully safe and alive. But he, again, has a feeling that that might not be the case in this situation. Now, something that had happened during the time that Holmes was traveling around with the kids is Alice, the older of the three that he had with them, had been writing letters to Carrie, her mom, and assumed that Holmes was sending them back to Carrie um, and Carrie was just not responding or they weren't getting to her. But she was writing these letters from all these different cities that they were traveling in. And Detective Frank Geyer was able to get a hold of those and actually track the movements that Holmes was making with the kids because of these letters. That's kind of cool, though. Very fortunate that he was able to find these and kind of trace the steps because of it. He ends up tracing them back to a lot of places, but one of the places was a house that Holmes had stayed at in Indianapolis, Indiana. And they actually go and investigate the house and they find the charred remains of a little boy in a stove that's in the house. And they were pretty sure at this point that that belonged to Benjamin Peitzel's son. Additionally, they go to a place in Toronto that Holmes had also stayed at and and end up finding the remains of the two daughters that were buried on the property. And it's at this point that they're really starting to make national news. The story is starting to kind of spill out everywhere and people are recognizing Holmes and recognizing what had happened and connecting the dots to everything else about him. It's at this point that detectives and really everybody is starting to identify Holmes as a serial killer. And with tracing his movements in his past, it is on July 19th, 1895, that police figure out, you know, that he owns this building in Chicago, also known or what we have referred to as the murder castle. And so investigators go in there and This is when they find all this crazy stuff, Um, all these insane rooms, these trap doors and secret hallways, 
along with a lot of the instruments used to hide bodies, um, the crematorium, the kiln, everything that Erica kind of mentioned, I think, in part one. And they're like, whoa, this is a lot bigger than we even initially thought. And as Erica mentioned in part one, we were talking about the Chicago World's Fair that was happening. It went over the course of months, like six months or something. And a lot of people were lured to this murder castle to stay there under false pretenses where Holmes would take advantage of them because they were traveling from all over the world and you know their families didn't know that they were missing and they were actually able to trace back some of the missing people that were reported during that time period and the connections that they had to staying at this place as well. And again, I'm not going to go too deep into that since we already covered it. I'll touch on some of it a little bit later. Just as like a refresher with this, like I said, Erica mentioned all this, but they did connect at least 50 people that went missing specifically from the Chicago World's Fair that could be tied to that building. But there are rumors that it could be way more into the hundreds. You know, they did find some remains and some blood type evidence but it was back in a time where they really didn't have the means to do analysis to connect these people and these remains together Um, a lot of times too the fragments from the human remains were small enough that they couldn't even really identify like how many bodies they could connect that were physically present inside this murder castle something interesting i wanted to touch on you know because this was growing in popularity infamously there were these talks about preserving this place to make it kind of this like murder museum a tourist attraction and then a little bit before that was gonna maybe come into place a fire broke out and burned the place down who knows who had any involvement with that but From what I read, they thought maybe it was just somebody who thought that was really morbid and shouldn't be done. And so they were like, we're going to burn it down so we can't memorialize this, essentially. Now, while Holmes is in jail for this, pending his trial, he writes an autobiography called Holmes's Own Story. And basically, he's saying that he is going... He's pleading not guilty. He's claiming his innocence. And he's saying that he wants to separate his name kind of from these like horrible things that are associated with him he's trying to say he didn't do anything wrong everybody else is to blame blah 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 i was gonna say so what does he think happened like there's still this whole murder castle that he designed and built and then all these people that have gone missing around him does he have a great explanation i don't think he does i know he changes his story so many times it's kind of like it, this this whole story reminds me so much of Ted Bundy in so many ways where it's like they're just and it'll come up more, but they're they need the attention no matter how they're getting it. And so right now, I think he's just trying to keep the debate going and maybe some hopes of preserving himself so that he gets found not guilty when he finally goes to trial. Eventually, a trial date is set. And it's set to take place in Philadelphia on October 28th, 1895. Now, the trial comes up and here's some more Ted Bundy kind of things that happen. He, the first day is like, I'm dismissing my counsel. I'm going to represent myself. And that reminded me of Ted Bundy so much so. I think it's crazy that some of these like big serial killers, that's what their thought process is. 
The only thing I can think of is that if they don't have somebody to represent them or counsel, because typically you're advised to tell your counsel the truth. So they would be advised to tell their counsel, you know, you really did this. And the, the counsel, so their representative is supposed to not admit that, right? Like they're just supposed to be like, yep, my client didn't do that. Mm-hmm. But so I don't know if they just think that not telling anybody's probably the safest way to get away with it. Yeah, maybe. I was watching a documentary and there was some historians talking about this case and one of them mentioned or they attributed it to the fact that he wanted to be the center of the show. He wanted to be up walking around and asking the questions to the witnesses and addressing the jury. And he wanted that attention on him solely, as opposed to if he's being represented, he's kind of sitting there quietly, which I I mean, that fits well into that kind of narcissistic behavior. And again, reminds me of Bundy, like they want that attention, even if it's negative. Yeah, it also allows him to really control where the trial goes and like what's focused on mm-hmm. because he, you know, gets to control his side completely. Absolutely. It does. And I didn't know you could do this. And maybe this is something back in the day you could do and you can't now. But at some point, it's like not looking very good for him. And he does bring his lawyers back in. And again, that documentary, the guy's like, well, he wants to be able to blame it on someone else if he is found guilty. So when he sees it's going bad, he wants to be like, well, I was doing fine. But the lawyers kind of screwed it up. As the trial progresses, one of the big moments that helps with the prosecution is when Carrie Peitzel comes in to testify. During the trial, Carrie Peitzel, who is the wife of the late Benjamin Peitzel and the mother of the three kids that Holmes had taken and their remains were found, does testify at Holmes's trial. She basically says this was the insurance fraud plan. This is what happened. And he manipulated me, took my kids, all of this stuff. And at some point... These letters that were used in the investigation are presented to Carrie, all the letters that her daughter Alice had been writing her. And Carrie like breaks down. And apparently the emotion was so much so that a lot of people who were attending the trial that day and the jury were all kind of feeling this emotion with her. And it was this huge wave of like tears and sadness. And with that, you look at Holmes who is just kind of sitting there. He doesn't really react to it. And I guess he was just like doodling on a piece of paper. Shows how much he really cares about the situation at hand. Yeah, it's not not looking good. And it's kind of interesting to look at him in this light where it's like he doesn't, the kind of psychopath, like he doesn't even know how to emote something. And what's interesting about this is a little bit later on, Georgiana Yoke, who was the one who bailed Holmes out originally in St. Louis comes in and when she walks in, Holmes just starts like sobbing. And a lot of people think he's doing that just to save face because he didn't react appropriately before. And so he's trying to show that he does have an emotional side. Now, during the trial, I'm going to speak a little bit to the claims that Holmes makes that Benjamin Peitzel committed suicide. They do bring in some people who dispute this. They bring in somebody who had talked to Benjamin that day. He was in good spirits and he was buying like a week's supply of whiskey and cigars, which would be weird if you're going to kill yourself. Additionally, Dr. Henry Lefman, who did the autopsy and toxicology report. That does seem slightly suspicious if he was like planning to take his own life, why he would go and purchase all these things. Unless like 
dealing with the whiskey as if that was part of his suicide plan, you know, but the it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't point to somebody who is heading down that path. Well, and it certainly wasn't an abnormality for him because he did have an alcohol addiction problem. Additionally, they bring in Dr. Henry Lefman, who was a toxicology expert, and he did determine that the chloroform that was found in Benjamin's digestive system couldn't have been self-administered because it wasn't absorbed through his stomach lining, meaning it was likely injected into his system post-mortem. That's interesting. His skin, and I apologize, this is the phrasing used during the trial, his skin, quote, cooked rather than blistered from exposure to the flames, which proves that he was dead when the fire was set. And it would have happened as like, you know, a lab accident, like they were setting it up to be. And I know we've talked about it so a couple times, but forensics is so cool that they can determine Mm -hmm. these specific things. Yeah. And you know, what's so fortunate in this case, because this happened so long ago, the saving grace to identifying that the chloroform was in there was that there was such a large quantity because if it was just trace, they probably wouldn't have been able to detect it. Holmes doesn't end up making a statement at all during the trial, which I know a lot of people were kind of upset about because like I said, this had become infamous and really well known. A lot of people were following it. And so they wanted to hear from him, but he did not make a statement. The jury ended up deliberating for about three hours. And on November 3rd, 1895, they came back and he was found guilty. A little bit later during his sentencing hearing, he had, I guess, filed a motion for a new trial, which the judge denied. And then they actually condemned him to death by hanging. Now, something that is the reason for a lot of information we have today is that during this time period where he's incarcerated before his death, he is offered, I think it's like $7,500 from some newspaper to make a confession. And he decides to do this. And he decides he's going to tell his story. And within this confession, he confesses to killing 27 people. Now, It's estimated that there's likely a lot more than this, but either way, this is what he confesses. And I did actually read through some of his confession. Um, You guys will be able to read it too if you want. We'll have the link as always. I didn't read through all of it. It was 27 instances of essentially the same stuff happening over and over again. But a few highlights of it that I think stuck out is that he used poison a lot to kill people. He had some pretty disgusting, creepy, gross ways that he killed people within his murder castle. Um, I'm not going to share that on here because I wish I hadn't read it in a way. And so I will let you guys do that to your own discretion. He admits to turning bodies into different medical places or different people for money, averaging about $25 to $45 for each body. There is a mix of like different kinds of murder tactics, which is a little bit interesting. I think, you know, a lot of times with serial killers, they kind of have their one MO and this is not him aside from the fact that poison was very popular with him, but there is an array of ways that he kills people in relation to the Peitzel murders. He does admit to all of these. He admits to murdering Benjamin and the children and it's pretty rough. Again, not going to get into the details. You guys know where to find it if you're interested. What I want to kind of move on to is 
his his time in prison up until his death, he's still kind of milking this attention. You know, he's writing this confession. He's getting all this media attention from people and I'm assuming he's kind of loving it and you can even kind of read that in his confession it's like it's weird it you can feel that he is looking for our attention in it he like compares himself to the devil he there's these sketches of him writing his confession like I think he's truly loving it he's only ever convicted of one murder right yeah he's convicted of murder in the first degree of benjamin peitzel so how is he not convicted of any of these other murders or do they just not feel like it was necessary because he was already sentenced to death for this murder i assume that's why um it just kind of was unnecessary i think it was pretty much inferred that he also killed the kids within this trial but i don't And I'm sorry if I'm incorrect. I don't think he was actually charged for the kids' murders. To my knowledge, he was only ever charged with one murder. Yeah. But I'm guessing at this point it was like he's going to be put to death anyway. So what's the point? I didn't know if there was another reason behind it or anything. Wasn't curious. Or I was curious if you'd come across that. On the day that his execution was set, a couple of weird things. I guess he really didn't seem that nervous. He had a... Well, he quite literally said that he wasn't a bit nervous and he had a quote hearty breakfast of eggs buttered toast and coffee which is insane to me ton of people showed up to witness this death uh says approximately 100 as we know back in the day this was kind of a normal thing people going to watch executions but especially with this being such a very popular infamous case there were definitely people who were wanting to go there and see this and This is something I didn't know about until I started researching. When he was like literally standing up there right before he was about to be hanged, everything he had said in his confessions was a lie. He basically decided to say, I was just lying and I didn't do anything. There were only two, except for two criminal operations, which he's referring to some botched abortions that resulted in the patient's deaths. That's the only thing he's saying he's actually guilty of. I am assuming that he's about to die. And as we know, he's kind of narcissistic and charming. He's got all these qualities, right? I'm assuming it was just to mess with everybody's head. That would be the sole reason that he would take back his whole confession Mm -hmm. right at the very end. Yeah, I think it's still just trying to, you know, make everybody wonder who this guy actually is. Keep them talking, essentially. Now, apparently, I guess when they were... Well, the superintendent of the prison was placing like the mask over his head and putting the noose on him. He kind of fumbled with it. And Holmes said, quote, take your time, Richardson. I'm in no hurry, end quote, which again, just points to like kind of the weird, like psychopathic tendency of this guy. Like, how are you not literally shitting your pants in this moment? Part of me wonders if he was sort of possibly in still like or in this mindset where he thought maybe he'd get away with it or like out of the situation somehow or maybe he was really just like he wanted to look cool and so he figured that if he just didn't act scared that would be the best way to look cool i don't know i guess so well and you know he was obviously so fascinated with death from a young age that maybe it was still like one of those like curiosities he had that yeah that's a really good point i hadn't thought about that but you mean Mm -hmm. he's been around a lot of death in his life obviously but he's never personally experienced it so maybe it is part of that fascination 
Mm-hmm. He is hung and dies from this, and he ends up dying nine days before he turns 35, which I didn't realize that he was so young when all this happened. I thought he was a little bit older, but I guess it makes sense. Something else I came across that I thought was interesting, he very specifically wanted to be buried within a like slab of concrete, essentially, because he was worried about someone like digging up his body and studying his brain or mutilating his body, which is very hypocritical. Yeah, I... I'm not really going to comment on that. Abby probably could figure out what my thoughts would be. Now, that's, you know, that's really all I have. I guess my question is for Erica, my next one. Overall, what was your kind of mindset on this case in relation to some of the other serial killers we covered? I think that when you described him kind of like Ted Bundy, I feel like that's a good explanation because, yeah, he does have those narcissistic, I'm going to get away with whatever I want kind of attitude. He's got that huge fascination with death which reminds me of Jeffrey Dahmer and so I could see that as well but I mean I feel like he's kind of just like your typical sociopath like I don't I think that he didn't have any emotions he just had this fascination and and part of me does wonder if there probably was but what not if there was but what sort of mental health issues lay there because there had to have been some things Mm -hmm. and I would be very curious, you know, if it was a more recent thing, there would be psych evals done and stuff. They wouldn't have done that back then. But I would be curious to see what would come out of that, just because I think the whole situation is really wild. Yeah. And, you know, something interesting that I genuinely just remember that I so we've been researching this for a few weeks now, and I was just genuinely watching a random episode of some mystery show. I don't even know what it was. And they started talking about H.H. Holmes. And I just realized that they did talk about how they looked at his brain to study it. But they were talking about the fact that it was after he was already dead, you know, obviously, because the thing that we know about serial killers now is like if you're going to study or anybody really, if you're going to study a brain and how it's reacting, it needs to be while they're alive. Yeah. And looking at the stimulation or lack thereof. And so they like have his brain, but it's like, what is this really doing for us? And it's interesting and it kind of makes me think about obviously we all have heard of H.H. Holmes it's a very common name you know him kind of as the first serial killer that's known but I didn't I didn't know a lot about him beyond that I knew about the murder castle and I kind of attributed him to like a Dahmer type of persona and researching this I was very interested about the narcissism that I didn't really think that much on the manipulation and like that Ted Bundy aspect that I just didn't even know he had that kind of element going on as well. Yeah. One of the things that I had read or watched or something discussed the fact that he tried to claim that he had been possessed, which once again, one of those last ditch efforts to whatever, try to prove your innocence. In all reality, it could be a delusion and it could be more focused on mental health. So I would be, I wish that it would have been something that would have been focused on back then. Cause yeah, now to look at it, you're not going to get the same information, not as accurate of information. Yeah. A hundred percent. And one other thing that, I mean, I know Erica touched on in part one, but it kind of dove into this on a documentary I was watching about him going to get his education. He went pretty far within his education and he was a very smart guy. And one of the people in the documentary made a comment like a lot of serial killers could get these like 
post you know primary high school education but they don't and the fact that he did set him up in a way that he could kind of fly under the radar and i think it's really interesting to look at that dynamic as well yeah for sure well as always we appreciate you guys listening we welcome any recommendations for cases we do like to do some of these longer episode ones where erica and i can both dive into every now and then so if you have any of those please feel free to send them our way and just again thank you so much for all of your support thanks to listening to this week's episode of crime over coffee you can find us on instagram at crime over coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.